calmly apply the brakes. This is the Poetry Slowdown Podcast, presented with joy and vigor by Dr. Barbara Mossberg. Poetry Shoe, the Poetry Slowdown with Professor Barbara Mossberg, produced by Zappa, that Zappa, John's. If the shoe fits, hear it. A Thanksgiving post-radio shoe that gets your poetic feet to slow down and hear the music that is our singing world, our ringing world, the news you need, the news you heed, the news without which men die miserably every day. William Carlos Williams, the doctor who knows. Our show today is called 10 Classical Takeaways You Need Right Now. And so does your daughter, and so does your grandfather. I'll admit, some of them run over a thousand pages. Some are translated from Sumerian on clay tablets. Some are from Spanish, Greek, French, Old English, written, sung, quirky as the day is long, poetry, prose, drama, spoken. They have messages for us for how we live our daily lives. I'm reporting to you live from Washington, D.C., fresh from thinking about my students at the Clark Honors College, University of Oregon, and through their eyes. The meaning of classics lights our world and heals the heart and gives us hope. Is that all, Dr. B? No, it is not. Through the eyes of our next leaders of society, classic texts are good nutrition, vegan, organic, and gluten-free. Thank you for joining in and our celebration of the news from Congress this week, the funding for the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts have been restored for 2018, and I was so lucky to be there in Washington when Congress is making this decision. And it's your engagement as lovers of radio, cultural arts, and all things poetry and lively culture, with over 187,000 emails to Congress. So that's a thumbs up for classical education. And the takeaway is it matters that we care On that note, thank you so much for listening. Okay, here's our show's top 10 takeaways this week. So I'll give you the summary. One, yes, you are indignant and have rage. Two, peace is possible. Three, we are all lost in the woods. Four, we are on our paths once we know we are lost. Five, there's no place like Ithaca. Six, Ithaca, sweet Ithaca, you can get there, but you have to fight for it. Seven, grab your shield and lance because there's work to be done. Eight, it might be foolish, it might blind you, it might kill you, but that is what heroic work is. Nine, 
The epic poet is your RX and SOS and 911 and magic mirror. And 10, you are wrong about your nose. And that's the good news. So, hello, Poetry Slowdown. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm Professor Barbara Mossberg, and we're at an epicenter of leadership. And what is more needed for a leadership epicenter than a leadership epic center? And what do we need now more than ever? You know what we need. We are all ever so demoralized with our civic culture. People are at each other's throats. People feel invisible and disrespected. And we still haven't figured out how we belong to each other and our earth. But there's good news out there. And this news is in texts that are written thousands and thousands of years ago in every language and culture with practical wisdom for us today. So, let's get started with what's on our bookshelf for our show. Gilgamesh, Beowulf, Iliad, Odyssey, Dante's Inferno, Cyrano de Bergerac, Don Quixote, and To Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street, Dr. Seuss, with notes from Wendell Berry, Mary Oliver, Shakespeare, Dylan Thomas, Derek Walcott, and Emily Dickinson, of course. And speaking of that, um, we're going to be celebrating Emily Dickinson's birthday on our next show. So um, start thinking about your favorite Dickinson lines, and I'll talk to you about that at the end of our show. So let's begin. Yes, you are indignant and have rage. Honor it and get over it. That's the message from our earliest text from around the world. Here's how Homer's Iliad begins. And this is telling us a story maybe from like a thousand BC. It begins. Rage. Sing, goddess. Achilles' rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds, as Zeus's will was done. That's how begins and it goes on. Begin with the clash between Agamemnon, the Greek warlord, and godlike Achilles. Which of the immortals set these two at each other's throats? Apollo, Zeus's son, and Leto's, offended by the warlord. Agamemnon had dishonored Chryses. Apollo's priest, so the gods struck the Greek camp with plague, and the soldiers were dying of it. So, 
What was happening in this earliest epic poem? Probably right after Gilgamesh from 2700 BC um, in present-day Iraq. He was the fifth king of Iraq. The story covered by the Iliad, which does cover history, begins nearly 10 years into the siege of Troy by the Greek forces. So it's beginning in the middle of this story, in the middle of this history, that people have been telling each other around the campfire for hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Okay, There is this legend. There is this history. Agamemnon, king of Mycenae. The Greeks are quarreling about whether or not to return Chryseis, and she is the daughter of Chryseis, the Apollo um, priest. She's a Trojan captive of King Agamemnon. So the Iliad set 3,000 years ago, during the final year of the Trojan War. This is a war in which Greek warriors sail the Aegean to which is now Turkey and besiege the citadel of Troy for 10 years. And why did they do this? Well, they did this because of discord among the gods and they can't decide among them who who's the fairest of them all and they decide to let poor Paris make this decision between Hera and Aphrodite and Athena. And Paris is offered power and wisdom and the most beautiful lady on earth. And he chooses the most beautiful lady on earth. She's already married. She is married to Agamemnon. So there's a real problem. And um, the Greeks have to go to Troy to avenge this. Okay. Well, in the first few pages of the Iliad, our Greek hero Achilles quarrels with the chief king Agamemnon. Now, these are all guys on the same side. They are the Greeks sailing to Troy to avenge Helen, Agamemnon's wife, being taken by Paris to Troy. Okay? And why are they fighting with each other? Well, in these days of the news, with women coming forward and telling how they have been abused, Achilles and Agamemnon are fighting because they each had taken female slaves. And... One of them had to give up his slave, so he took the other one's slave. So they're fighting over this, okay? They're fighting over their prizes as they're sacking cities and stealing women. And then they're sulking when they can't have these women. So Agamemnon seizes the woman. Achilles withdraws from the fighting in a rage. That's why he's mad. And he remains out of the fray for most of the poem. 
the Iliad. And without him, um, things are not uh, going well for his team. The Trojans, led by Hector, the son of King Priam, um, almost burn the Greek ships and drive the Greeks into the sea. But Hector kills Achilles' close friend, Patroclus. Um, and because Patroclus said, I'm going to, you know, we're, since Achilles won't fight, I'm just going to go and pretend that I'm him. And then they kill him. So he gets back into the fight at the end. Um, he kills Hector. Uh, he abuses his court. And in the final pages of the poem, he returns it to the father for funeral honors. And the Iliad ends there. Before Achilles dies from an arrow shot into his heel, before the Greeks enter Troy by means of the wooden horse and destroy the citadel. And it's all about rage. And Achilles is told, get over it. Get over it. Your rage is making your team lose, you know. And the sequel, the Odyssey, begins with Odysseus stranded on an island with a goddess in lust with him, and the rage, the anger, the indignation of Poseidon for Odysseus blinding his son. This is what is driving Odysseus's struggle to return home to Ithaca. But Poseidon is told by the gods, get over it. Honor, yes, your rage you were dealt with unjustly or cruelly, you're indignant, maybe rights on your side. But at some point, as my mother used to say to me, Barbara, you have to go on from here. You have to get over it. And the book ends with a surcease of rage and war by decree of the gods, but not before a lot of rage and anger. So we can think of our earliest stories as acknowledging that we do have rage, we do have anger about things, but for society to go on, it has to subside. Here is Homer. Been standing close beside him, gray-eyed Athena said to him, Son of Archeos, far dearest of all my companions, make your prayer to the gray-eyed girl and to Zeus her father, then quickly balance your far-shadowing spear and throw it. So Pallas Athena spoke and breathed into him enormous strength. And making his prayer then to the daughter of Zeus, he quickly balanced his far-shadowing spear and threw it and stuck at Pythias on the brazen side of his helmet. Nor could the helm hold off the spear, but the bronze smashed clean through.
through. It seems that our first written and recorded stories are owning the fact that, yes, we have anger and rage, but once it's acknowledged, we have to get over it. And in a modern version, here is Wendell Berry with advice about how to deal with our indignation and anger. Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carry-on. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not Go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Wendell Berry. Or, as Dylan Thomas said, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
The wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late, they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meters and be gay, rage. Rage against the dying of the light, and you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Perhaps our wisdom on rage and getting over it is from Rumi, the Sufi mystic who fled the tyrant Genghis Khan 2,000 miles in the 1200s and writes a poem about shedding indignation. And as I said before, my mother would say, Barbara, you have to go on from here. Here's Rumi, Zero Circle. Be helpless, dumbfounded, unable to say yes or no. Then a stretcher will come from grace to gather us up. We are too dull-eyed to see that beauty. If we say we can, we're lying. If we say no, we don't see it. That no will behead us and shut tight our window onto spirit. So let us rather not be sure of anything besides ourselves, and only that. So miraculous beings come running to help, crazed, lying in a zero circle, mute. We shall be saying finally with tremendous eloquence, lead us when we have totally surrendered to that beauty we shall be a mighty kindness. So our second takeaway, which is related, is that peace is possible. At the end of the Odyssey, after Odysseus has killed the suitors and the suitors' families are now coming after him, the gods give a cease and desist order. Athena says, hold back men of Ithaca, from the wearisome fighting, so that most soon and without blood you can settle everything. And this is how our epics, our classic literature, ends. Whether it's Gilgamesh, 2700 B.C., Beowulf, Old English, there's peace restored. That's the happy ending.
Our third takeaway is we're all lost in the woods. The benefit of reading classical epic is to find that we're not alone. This seems to be the message not only of classic texts, but modern versions. Sometimes into the woods ends with, you are not alone. Jacques Brel, no love, you're not alone. And yet, as we know from Carousel in the song, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. We do feel we are alone and most often lost. Who says it better and more clearly than Dante in his Divine Comedy, which begins in darkness and lostness, midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah, me, how hard a thing it is to say. What was this forest savage, rough, and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear. So bitter is it, death is little more. But of the good to treat, which there I found, speak will I of the other things I saw there. I could not re well repeat how there I entered, so full was I of slumber at the moment in which I had abandoned the true way. But after I had reached a mountain's foot, that point where the valley terminated, which had with consternation pierced my heart, upward I looked, and I beheld its shoulders, vested already with the planet's rays, which leadeth off and right by every road. Then was the fear a little quieted, that in my heart's lake had endured throughout the night which I had passed so piteously. And even as he who with distressful breath forth issued from the sea upon the shore turns to the water perilous and gazes, so did my soul that still was fleeting onward turn back to behold the path which never yet a living person left. After my weary body I had rested, the way resumed I on the desert slope, and lo, almost where the ascent began, a panther, light and swift exceedingly, which with a spotted skin was covered o'er, and never moved she from before my face, nay, rather did impede so much my way, that many times I to return had turned. The time was the beginning of the morning, and he's he so terrified, and then a lion which appeared to me. He seemed as if against me he were coming with head uplifted and with ravenous hunger. So it seemed the air was afraid of him. And, and a she-wolf that with all hungering seemed to be laden in her meagerness and many folk had caused to live forlorn. She brought upon me so much heaviness with the affright that from her aspect came that I the hope relinquished of the height. Well, the time comes that causes him to lose who weeps in all his thoughts and is despondent. Well, this was the situation of Dante's hero. 
He's terrified. And one of the things that I love about this, and I love teaching it, is every one of us can say, that's me. I'm there. I'm in the dark woods. I'm afraid. There are snarling and hissing monsters in my path. It's terrifying. And I don't know where I am. One of the things we realize is that we are on our path once we know we're lost. That sounds counterintuitive, but we can't solve a problem unless and until we know we have a problem to be solved. So knowing we have a problem, we're 90% there. We can't get on our path until we're conscious of needing to be on our path. And once we start worrying that we're off it, Maybe that means that Wendell Berry suggests that the moment when you realize you're off your path, you're on it, you're on your way, it is absolutely the case in Dante that once he feels that he has lost his way, he's found himself. And that is when, in the very first three lines, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest arc, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. We can read this poetry slowdown. We can read this as, I found myself. Yes, he finds himself in the process of being conscious of being in a dark forest and being lost. So at the moment that you realize you are lost, that's the moment of being found. And in fact, once he realizes that he's in this situation, he invokes the universe to come to his aid. And who comes to his aid? Poetry slowed down. We love this story. It's Virgil. It's an epic poet. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, he's on the scene. He is going to guide our narrator, Dante, to the light. And that wouldn't have happened. And he wouldn't have learned everything that he needs to learn without realizing that he's lost. So, as so many of our epic stories tell us, well, you can get to the light, you can get to the happy ending, but first you have to go through hell literally here you have to go to the underworld the same is true in homer's the odyssey for odysseus to find out how to get home to ithaca he's got to go to the underworld we can get home we can have a happy ending but first we have to suffer we have to know that we're in darkness and that we're lost, but 
who's going to lead us out of it? It's the poets, and they're there. So this is W.S. Merwin, a modern uh, version of this wisdom. It's called Sire. Here comes the shadow not looking where it is going, and the whole night will fall. It is time. Here comes the little wind which the hour drags with it everywhere like an empty wagon through leaves. Here comes my ignorance shuffling after them, asking them what they are doing. Standing still, I can hear my footsteps come up behind me and go on ahead of me and come up behind me and with different keys click clinking in the pockets and still I do not move. Here comes the white-haired thistle seed stumbling past through the branches like a paper lantern carried by a blind man. I believe it is the lost wisdom of my grandfather whose ways were his own and who died before I could ask. Forerunner, I would like to say, silent pilot, little dry death, future, your indirections are as strange to me as my own. I know so little that anything you might tell me would be a revelation. Sir, I would like to say, it is hard to think of the good woman presenting you with children like cakes, granting you the eye of her needle, standing in doorways, flinging after you little endearments like rocks, or her silence like a whole Sunday of bells. Instead, tell me, which of my many incomprehensions did you bequeath me, and where did they take you? Standing in the shoes of indecision, I hear them come up behind me and go on ahead of me wearing boots on crutches, barefoot. They could never get together on any door cell or destination. The one with the assortment of smiles, the one jailed in themselves like a forest. The one who comes back at evening drunk with despair and turns into the wrong night as though he owned it. Oh, small deaf disappearance in the dusk, in which of their shoes will I find myself tomorrow? And that is W.S. Merwin, Sire. And here, another contemporary version, Mary Oliver the summer day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done?
Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary Oliver. So the times when we feel that we are lost, when we're in the darkness, maybe we are not anything but blessed. Maybe this is the time when we kneel down. Maybe this is what we should be doing, is feeling this. And maybe this is at the heart of living. Maybe this is our one wild and precious life. Takeaway, there's no place like Ithaca. Well, we find in every one of our epics that there is this quest to reach somewhere, to reach home, a place that we have been gone from, we've been separated from, a place where we belong a place of peace, a place of nurture. And we're not there, and we want to get there. Now, in the Odyssey, there are 24 books. In the very first stanza, we learn from Homer's narrator that he has been gone for 10 years in the war, now it's been another 10 years, and he's still not home. He has been waylaid, and all he wants to do is get home to Ithaca. So we think that this story, the 24 books, is about him getting home to Ithaca. But in fact, poetry slowed down. He gets to Ithaca halfway through the book. Mm -hmm. So we're going to think about this. Emily Dickinson has a poem. I years had been from home, putting herself right into Odysseus's footsteps, and reading the classics for her was very therapeutic. It really gave her a community. When she uh, wrote her, what I think of as her signature anthem, a poem, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a peer of us, don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. Well, she is covering Odysseus when he is in the cave of the Cyclops, who's eating his men for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, two at a time, and Odysseus comes up with this idea that they're going to get grapes and stop them, and they're going to make wine, and they're going to 
cut down a tree and file it to a point. They're going to build a fire and they're going to lift up this tree and they're going to stick it in the fire red hot and they're going to have given the Cyclops the wine, gotten him roaring drunk, and then they're going to stick the tree, pointed tree, into his eye and blind him. This all does sound pretty improbable. I know. But that is the plan that I do. And if you ever in town, inquire, we'll be glad to have you share the home fire. So Emily Dickinson, covering Odysseus, says, I years had been from home, and now, before the door, I dared not open, lest a face I never saw before stare vacant into mine and ask my business there. My business, just the life I left, was such still dwelling there. I fumbled at my nerve. I scanned the windows near. The silence like an ocean rolled and broke against my ear. I laughed a wooden laugh that I could fear a door who danger and the dead had faced but never quite before. I fitted to the latch my hand with trembling care lest back the awful door should spring and leave me standing there. I moved my fingers off as cautiously as glass and held my ears and like a thief fled gasping from the house. And this is almost what happened to Odysseus. Halfway through the Odyssey, he reaches home and he doesn't even recognize it when he's there. And uh, he sort of comes to consciousness and finally that he is there. He can't just go and resume himself. Home, home on the range Where the deer and the antelope play So here we are, we're at home, but he finds out that his wife is in a situation where all these suitors have overtaken his house. They're eating him out of house and home. They want to kill his son. His wife and son are really um, overrun. Uh, there's nothing they can do. And so he can't just say, hi, I'm home. He has to fight for it. So our, our sixth takeaway Ithaca, sweet Ithaca, you can get there, but you have to fight for it. We see Emily Dickinson, you know, it's sort of terrifying to imagine that you actually are going to be where you belong at last, but it may have changed. You may have changed. Do you still fit? What are you going to have to do to make it yours? And 
having to fight for where you belong, that's very hard. When we get to um, the next stage of our journey, what about when we are home and we find that things need to change, things need to be better, and we go back to one of our very first novels, Cervantes' Don Quixote, and in the introduction, he says he's looking around, he's looking around his hearth, his comfortable home, and he realizes, because he's been reading epic literature, that things could be better. So he gets out his rusty shield, and he gets out his lance, and he knows there's work to be done. He's got to take up the work of the night, and he's got to go out, and he's got to fight. Our eighth takeaway, it might be foolish, it might blind you, it might kill you, but that is what heroic work is, and should you do it anyway. And we think about the stories that we have, with all the epics. And we see that if you're the hero, if you're trying to right the wrong on behalf of your community, you usually end up having to sacrifice yourself. In the case of Don Quixote, he's considered foolish, and at the end of every chapter, um, he's basically lying beaten up on the ground. In the case of Sophocles' Oedipus the King, we find that Oedipus's efforts to try to, to save, to do right by his kingdom and community, ends up with his being blind. Um, in the case of Beowulf, the heroic self-sacrifice of Beowulf, he, he dies. So we see that there's this connection between being heroic, but even if you are being heroic, you're going to sacrifice yourself um, you're going to die. But then they say you're going to die anyway should you be heroic. And this is the question. Isn't it interesting, Poetry Slowdown, that our earliest literature from every culture around the world, from every religion, every language, this is what thinking about. This is the nature of the stories, this quest to do right by your community, even though it's going to involve your own sacrifice and your own fight. So our ninth takeaway is the epic poet is your Rx, your SOS, your 911, and your magic mirror. Just as we see with Dante, the 
um, finding yourself lost on your path in a dark wood. Who comes to the rescue? Virgil, the epic poet. And this is the theme of our stories, our earliest stories. The plot is really the effort to tell the story. Our uh, original epics, they're appealing to the muse. Muse, help me tell this story. Dante saying, help me tell this story. Everyone is putting the spotlight on themselves, telling the story. And Don Quixote, the narrator, here I am trying to tell you the story. Everybody wants to have the spotlight on that effort, the storyteller itself. And the storyteller is always relying on earlier stories, um, storytellers, and epic and classical works. So you call for help and the muse answers because where what is the real nature of the help? It's trying to express ourselves. It's trying to tell our story. It's trying to be understood. It's trying not to be alone. It's trying to give the gift that other people know that what they're feeling is part of a community and they are not alone. And in this way, these classic works can be magic mirrors that we hold up to ourselves and we see ourselves in these stories. So that takes us to our tenth takeaway. You are wrong about your nose and that's the good news. Now, what do I mean by that poetry slowdown? Well now I'm talking about Cyrano de Bergerac, another story about a man who is reading epic literature and poetry, and that shapes who he is. In the case of Cyrano de Bergerac, once again a historic figure, Rostan tells us that he is a great swordsman, he's a great fighter, He's great with words, but what does he want most? He wants the love of the beautiful Roxanne. And he thinks he never can get this love because he has a big nose. Well, when I'm teaching this uh, book, what I do first is I ask my students, write down something that you want with all your heart and that you actually can never achieve through no fault of your own. Then we read Cyrano de Bergerac. And in this story, Cyrano, for the whole story, the whole play, he has repudiated his own chances of winning Roxanne's love, so he's never declared his love for her. Instead, he's written her love letters, and uh, he's done it under the pretense that a really handsome man um, has actually written the letters. Then he's died, and he's never revealed himself. He just goes and visits every week, tells the news of the court, and so on, and he's got a broken heart. And at the end, he's 
dying. And she realizes that he's the one who's been sending her the letters. And she loves him. So I ask, was Cyrano right about his nose? No. He wasn't right. So, for all of us who think that there are things that we want with all our heart, but we can never have them through no fault of our own, this might be our nose that we are wrong about. What what could we be wrong about? What new ways do we have of thinking about things that we think will prevent us? Are there ways that we can even think of that our so-called noses, our, our big obstacles, can they actually be um, an asset? And Steve Martin takes this up when he does a version of Cyrano de Bergerac in his film Roxanne, and he makes Cyrano Charlie the fire chief. And at the end of his story, Charlie, because of his big nose, smells a fire that would have destroyed the town. And he becomes a hero, he saves the town, and his nose is actually a wonderful asset. And then Roxanne, um, tells him that she loves him and she loves his nose. So that's that's the good news. We can take such a story and we can identify with the protagonist of these classical works and we can have hope for ourselves because we're in that situation. So we see new possibilities. Isn't that wonderful? So those are 10 takeaways of why these ancient stories might be relevant to us. They might be encouraging. They give us a sense of community that we're not alone. They tell us, um, get over things. Uh, they encourage us to be heroic, to be brave, to take risks, to fight for what's important. I always um, love to have my students sing song from Man of La Mancha, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable fight, and these lines, to strive when the heart is so weary to reach the unreachable star. So we have song and we have story all based on these original classical works. And it's wonderful to reflect this very moment that Congress has indeed restored the funding for National Endowment of the Humanities, National Endowment of the Arts. And here we are. We can be readers. We can share this literature. We can share our story with the next generations. And we all need this encouragement. We all are in Ithaca. We're all fighting for Ithaca. We all have a rusty shield. And we all have some kind of 
ants, and here we are, and maybe we're foolish, but we're fighting for what we believe in, and our epic poets have our back, and they're cheering us on. This is Professor Barbara Mossberg, Dr. B, with producer Zappa, that Zappa, Johns. We're with the poetry slowdown or poetry shoe, if the shoe fits. Hear it, hear it. Thank you so much for listening. And next week, we'll celebrate Emily Dickinson. Of course, of course we will. Send your favorite poem to me at barbara.mossberg at gmail.com. Tell your name. Tell Tell the poem you love, and we'll hear each other then. Our community, the poetry, slow down. Thank you for listening. I got no deeds to do, no promises to keep. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep. Let the morning time drop all its petals on me. Life, I love you, all is groovy. <laughs>